G'day, I'm Barry Green. Welcome to Conversations on Radio WA, 87.6 FM in East Perth and Western Tourist Radio in the tourism towns in the southwest of Western Australia. My next guest, Dr Gary Fetke, grew up in WA before becoming an orthopaedic surgeon practising in Launceston in Tasmania. Gary has a major interest in preventative medicine and encourages his patients to lose weight before undergoing surgery. Although his specialty is surgery, Gary believes it's much better to help people avoid surgery if at all possible by taking preventative measures which often involve altering the diet. In recent years, Gary's focused on the role of diet in the development of diabetes, obesity and cancer and has been speaking at on the combined role of sugar, fractose, refined carbohydrates and polyunsaturated oils linking together to be behind the inflammation and modern disease. He has incurred the wrath of the regulatory bodies for his stand on public health, but he and his wife Belinda remain active defending the benefits of a low-carb, healthy-fat diet. Their ongoing work has uncovered the vested interests and ideologies shaping nutritional guidelines at an international level. G'day, Gary Fetke. Hi, Barry. I've only got to disagree with one statement there. You said I grew up in... WA, I still haven't grown up. <laughs> there you go. You're still learning. That's the important thing. Absolutely. And I think um, you've got to keep having that uh, inquisitive mind and inquisitive look at life because uh, my father had a, well, still has a motto. He's getting on a bit now, but um, never go to bed unless you've learnt something new each day. And uh, it's, a, it's a good motto to live by. Really good. And uh, and an inquiring mind is very necessary. And in the situation we've been in the last few years in a lot of Australia, uh, acquiring mind's been uh, frowned upon if you don't follow the, uh, <laughs> the certain medical advice. Well, you, you've, you've had an email from me and you see that my byline at the bottom of it is that <clears throat> science evolves by being challenged, not by being followed. Yeah. Um, and that if the moment we stop challenging the current paradigms, doesn't matter what it is, then that's the end of development, that's the end of science. Um, that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, nothing, the, the, the null hypothesis, the scientific method is all about disproving what we're doing at the moment. Unless we have an open discussion and debate about that, then, um, well, there is no progress and uh, then then it's stagnation and with that comes... Uh, Decline. Yeah. You know, Everything, yeah, yeah. It's the end of civilization. I mean, I'm, 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 you know, I know that's big statements, but that's um, where I stand. And you know, I like to be challenged on what I'm talking about because, you know, I'm still learning. I concur with that. I did an interview a few months ago with Dr. Judy Wileyman, and uh, she talked about exactly the same thing and said, following the science isn't science, it's religion. Oh, there's an enormous crossover there. And, um, you know, people have their beliefs, and that's fine. But, um, Beliefs are beliefs until you can actually back it up with data. And, you know, that's, I used to believe my, I mean, I call this uh, generational education. We believe our teachers and our teachers believe their, their teachers. But when you actually delve back into, you know, I call it recent history, last 100 to 150 years, you find that so much of our medical uh, decision making has actually been shaped by vested interest, um, whether or not it's ultimately the processed food industry or the pharma pharmacological industry. But 1910 was a very formative period in, in medicine 
when holistic health was pretty well thrown out and we had the birth of the pharmaceutical industry and the concept of medicate to medicate and to operate. Dietary guidelines were shaped by decisions and thoughts from the temperance movement in the 1850s. And when you start chasing all this down, you find it's not science at all. It's actually more religious ideology and, and, and profit and, and uh, shelf life and, and marketing. I call it marketing-based science. I'm sure you're right. In another life, I'm involved in organic or regenerative agriculture, and the same things happen there. Uh, modern agriculture is all based on sort of NPK farming and arguably producing food that is uh, lacking in nutrition. And you know, the, the, the immune system is what keeps us healthy and uh, that needs healthy food from healthy soils. I mean, that's where our crossover is. Um, there's a talk of mine on YouTube called The Central Role of Nutrition in Everything. And uh, unless we talk about the environment and our soil quality, we can't actually talk about the quality of our food. And then you know, that talk also you know, crosses into politics, education, uh, media and, and religion um, because they're all completely interlinked. And as a society, the quality of our soil is going down because of our farming practices. And as a result of that, the quality of the food we're producing is going down. And the, the moment we start processing it more and more, then we take out nutrients and... Um, then we end up with uh, poor health. And unless we address it at every level, then uh, you know, it's almost insurmountable as a system. It's, it's actually relatively easy as an individual to change it all up for yourself, but the question is how do you do it at a system level? That's really interesting, Gary, and I guess we'll, we'll play this conversation on tourist radio and community radio in Western Australia, and, and these are conversations that aren't being had in the commercial media because largely the commercial media is paid for by advertising from the, the, the companies that are causing the problems. It, it is. It is largely paid for that, and it's hard to get traction on these topics. But the other thing which is hard to get traction is, is because it's actually complex. Um, mainstream media headlines front page news is all about having one message. The moment you've got two, let alone three, then it's really hard to get those points across in, in sound bites. And it's not and that's the beauty about podcasts and lectures where you can actually put it all on YouTube and it, whether it goes for twenty minutes, thirty minutes, an hour, some for even longer when you actually have these discussions, you can actually start working around and realise that they're all intertwined. And so mainstream media is actually not interested in it for a lot of reasons, but I've had experiences uh, where we've talked about this on commercial uh, media and commercial radio, and uh, within a couple of hours, um, the advertisers of that radio station were ringing up saying, pull the program. Very interesting, and that's a problem we don't have on community radio or tourist radio. We, we don't have advertisers of those sorts. We, we're are providing a voice for community and small business. So I guess I like to think what we're doing is uh, is, is regenerative media, providing a, a message that uh, is in the, in the interests of our listeners. Um, and I keep going back to the you know the tobacco scenario. For years, we, the tobacco industry was saying that there's no proof tobacco caused uh, or smoking caused lung cancer, but Blind Freddy could see it. But the science wasn't done to prove it. And and this is sort of where the, the sort of systems failed somewhat. Well, the tobacco industry actually learnt their marketing <clears throat> concepts from Coca-Cola. Uh, Coca-Cola were employing these tactics in around 1910 when uh, this issue was being raised uh, in the US Congress and the health uh, problems. 
Uh, and they just came in and started slamming um, that concept, slamming the topic, slamming, you know, what they call pseudoscience. And the fellow who was involved in that actually resigned from trying his government position, actually started going and working for a women's magazine because he realised he could actually communicate with the people in the the homemakers um, via, you know, social media at that point in time. Um, so the tobacco industry learnt their tactics from Coca-Cola tactics back around 19, early 1900s. Uh, and the food industry are inextricably linked up now in huge organisations with the tobacco industry. They're all completely linked up uh, at a corporate level and they're using the same tactics again. It's, it's you know, it's creating smoke and mirrors what we call, not, I call it non-science, which is very spelt not dissimilarly from nonsense. And because when you start challenging this in basic biochemistry, then it keeps falling over. But, you know, they just fund the papers, they fund the, the journals, and then they fund the media that goes with it. There's massive amounts of money behind um, this, this false narrative. You know, it's no different in the agricultural industry follow the money to a degree and I know that sounds conspiratorial but guess what that's where it is it's been in place for a hundred years and though you know they're seasoned campaigners at keeping this message going you talk about agriculture and that's something that's fairly close to my heart but what's exciting in the the organic region ag movement is that the internet is providing a mechanism for innovative farmers to work with independent scientists and, and this has never happened before because throughout history Information's been controlled by kings and queens, bishops and dictators, and more recently Rupert Murdoch. But the internet's changing that, and uh, so you've got a website, you can tell your story, put your point of view. One of my inspirations in the regenerative agriculture movement is Charles Massey, the author of Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth. And he talks about, uh, and he's a practicing farmer, and he's talking about regenerative agriculture. He talks about developing diverse, self-organizing ecosystems. And uh, when you you create that diversity and the ecosystems work, whereas what we've been doing in agriculture is actually destroying that. And I think there's an analogy there to what's happening on the internet, is that the internet's providing a mechanism for this sort of diverse ecosystem of ideas. And that's what gives me hope for the future, that uh, that people are going to become aware of the issues. And um, podcasts, as you say, will podcast this radio segment. And, uh, and on the tourist radio format, People on holiday are perhaps more open to new ideas, and if they hear new ideas when people are relaxed, they can sort of learn more and take it further. Well, I'm I'm hopeful for the future with getting that information out there. I'm concerned by the censorship of, of social media, and you can look at uh, metrics associated with social media and how they're literally in this space ten percent of what they were five years ago. So that. There is some degree of censorship at this point in time, but it's also, this just makes sense. Uh, and uh, regenerative agriculture, um, this is the way we actually evolved. It's our, um, yeah, our ancestral diet, it's our ancestral farming practices. It's actually using, um, you know, I'm a huge supporter of animal-based agriculture because it's the one thing which actually restores nutrients to the soil. You know, ruminants uh, eat grass, which takes carbon dioxide out of the uh, out of the air, out of the air, and then puts it back into the soil. 
whereas the majority of plant-based agriculture, particularly commercial farming practices, which are requiring significant amounts of fertiliser, is actually taking nutrients out of the soil. And the trouble is, you know, the, mo- the more fertiliser you put in there, the, the simplest one from my point of view is the more potassium you put into your fertiliser, the more it binds magnesium in the soil. Magnesium's so important across a, a, a variety of pathways and biochemical pathways in the body. The vast majority of food, even if you think you're eating healthy, is actually magnesium depleted because it's just not in the soil. So, you know, we're, we're literally on this on the same path because I'm watching the end product of actually poor nutrition. And it's not just bad food, it's actually bad quality food on top of it, having you know detrimental effects. And we are so fortunate in Australia, and particularly Tasmania where I live, that we have access to good quality food. And I'm so disappointed. Uh, you know, we have the privilege of good quality food. So I'm disappointed that we have a government and a system and a, and a society around us that doesn't embrace that quality food when there's so many areas on the planet that actually don't have access to that. And, you know, it's, it's a huge, huge topic. We've uh, got this subsidised sickness industry, but food's all done on the basis of Dan Dan on price. But I'm old enough to remember when we said if something was cheap, it was cheap and nasty. And that tends to be the case still. And food isn't just the energy we're not buying petrol food is energy but it's also so much more and uh, the science as i understand it knows that the the vitamins and minerals in modern fresh food and vegetables are a fraction of what they were at the end of the second world war if we're going to follow the science why aren't we looking at that more gary that, that's all i talk about <clears throat> you know i talk about the science here's the biochemistry i i think we should be eating to nutrient requirements not energy requirements there's so much energy in food carbohydrates are empty there is not a single biochemical pathway in the body that requires us to eat glucose fructose sugar carbs not a single one it seems like that's a big controversial comment but nonetheless, I've, you know, I've done that talk. It's there, you know, what carbohydrate, the dose is the poison. You work out exactly how much we need, and it's incredibly small. We need essential proteins and essential healthy fats. And that um, if we eat to our nutrient density, we'd actually just, we, we eat all that we require. I use the, the, the example of a pizza. It's got truckloads of energy in it. But at the end of a pizza, people are still hungry because they haven't actually had the nutrients that they require. So the the next thing is go and eat a second pizza. And um, our bodies are, are searching for nutrient requirements and as a result are overeating with energy. That's what they're calling the hidden hunger, I think, isn't it? Oh, well, that's another term for it. Uh, but essentially, we're hungry for nutrition. And as a result... Um, uh, uh, I'm eating less food, but what I do is, is nutrient dense, and uh, you know, there's enough energy that comes with all of that. And if we actually do eat to that, then our body's going to be healthier. They're not going to be spending hours of each day you know, clearing these these unnecessary amounts of energy. Um, and I talk particularly about carbohydrates there because those whatever we uh, eat in in excess of really one teaspoon of glucose or four grams gets converted to fat and then that fills up our liver and then that gets um, pushed around the body and then fills up our body, gets what we call central uh, fat, 
which accumulates around the heart and the liver and the kidneys and the, the gut. And you, and you can see that person. That's the person with the big, big, big waste measurement. That's unnecessary carbohydrate intake on the whole. It's not excess protein. It's not excess fat, excess fat intake. It's actually really hard to eat an excess amount of protein. Have you, have you ever been to a Brazilian restaurant where they serve you as much meat as you can eat? No, I haven't. It's like a smorgasbord, but essentially it's only meat. So um, varieties of meat, uh, and it's and essentially they give you a disc, and when you can no longer eat anymore, you turn the disc over and just stop. And it's impossible to overeat. You just literally fill up, you're completely stuffed, and you, you don't feel like eating for the next 24 hours because right. protein is incredibly satiety, full of nutrients, uh, particularly if you eat you know, respectfully. I'm not saying gorge it, but everyone should be gorging on meat. I'm just saying that it's very hard to overeat yeah. on protein and healthy fats, uh, whereas it's very easy to overeat on carbohydrate. And the classic example is fruit. Uh, animals will gorge themselves on fruit. They'll strip a tree bare a day or two before the fruit ripens. But that whole concept of what's actually in fruit, glucose, but particularly fructose, that half of sugar, drives behaviour. And that's biochemistry. And that drives it at a, at, a, at a level inside the brain and drives it at a chemical level within the gut. And it's quite a fascinating process, but we're only just learning about the biochemistry of, of sugar. People would think we should know everything about it, but the biochemistry of fructose, half of sugar, was actually only definitively described 10 years ago. Right. There's still papers coming out about the, uh, about what actually happens with glucose. The latest stuff is that if you actually look at joint damage, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, if you look at the cartilage in osteoarthritis and you look at the damage within tendons, like rotator cuff and Achilles tendons, yeah, but lots of people have tendonitis. If you actually look at the tissue level there, all you find are the end products of glucose metabolism. You don't find protein. The primary issue is not that of inflammation or damage. It's actually byproducts of glucose metabolism, what we call advanced glycation end product. So it's quite fascinating from my point of view when I see my patients stop their sugar intake, their carbohydrate intake, even in end-stage arthritis. Virtually all of them have a symptomatic improvement. And a lot of them, a lot of them avoid surgery. Now, I guess uh, that's the unfortunate thing from the business models that so many organisations are working on. Um, you, you're shooting yourself in the foot. My issue, I just got sick and tired of chopping off bits of diabetic feet week in, week out, um, and uh, that is just devastating. When that is a completely avoidable complication, when you get good control of diabetes or you avoid it completely. I mean, one of the things I actually got reported once to the medical board for inappropriately reversing someone's type 2 diabetes. Now, that concept of uh, low carb, um, low carb healthy fat, but essentially reducing your carbohydrate intake puts diabetes into control and remission. The great thing that happened last year is that this concept I'm talking about is now part of the National Diabetes Strategy. So it's been adopted by the Australian government as a method of putting type 2 diabetes into remission. The other one is bariatric surgery, which is operating on people on a normal organ for a lifestyle disease or actually having a change in diet. And 
So we've the science is there. We have the ability to put type two diabetes into remission. And and I literally, if you adopt what I'm saying and you go at it hardcore, I can put your diabetes, type two diabetes, into remission in a day or two. So those people who really want to go at it can. And and so, you know, with the right support and the right information, which it, I can guarantee doesn't come from the pharmaceutical industry, they hate this topic. Like we can, you know, we can reduce your medication. The fellow I did in question, we did it with Channel 7, uh, in a 12-week period, because we watched it over a period of time, uh, he reversed his diabetes, put it into remission, came off seven medications, seven, yep. and improved his health and well-being. So it's it's exciting times. If, if but you know this comes down to the quality of the food, the quality of the information, and to find it in an unbiased fashion. And Gary, I I was watching the Australian Medical Professional Society Medico Legal Summit 2022, uh, and you were involved in that. Can you tell us a bit about that organisation? There's a major issue in Australia at this point in time, um, particularly Australia, where we're most familiar, where we have a fear of the medical regulator and so as a result of the overreach of the medical regulator defensive medicines being practiced and that has implications for everyone in the country APRA is the Australian Health Practitioners um, Regulatory Authority and they supervise nearly 800,000 health practitioners in Australia as doctors nurses chiropractors dentists pharmacists um, radiologists, uh, radiographers, it's quite quite far-reaching. And uh, we need a regulator, there's no question, we need a registration body, but what's happening is that they don't have governance, they don't have oversight. And as a result of that, they have become quite powerful and there's currently have the ability uh, to actually say or think, and they've got some uh, pathways in front of them at the moment, to allow them to put out in the media uh, statements about people under investigation. So you are guilty until proven otherwise, and they can publicly announce that. Now, what this actually means for the public is that when you go to your doctor, they tend to actually over-test, create all sorts of further investigations at a cost to the individual and to the community. But more importantly, they won't speak out about anything which is not completely and utterly proven in a guideline. Now, my situation is that I, I've spoken out about dietary guidelines and particularly the problems related to sugar uh, intake over time. Now, as it turned out, I was targeted by the cereal industry here in Australia and they, by the Dietitians Association, uh, put in three claims against me through the medical board all of which were falsified and took me five years to uh, clear my name through three Senate inquiries. So effectively, I was innocent, but the system was used against me to silence a message of public health. Now, that same process has been in place for many people in the last couple of years around COVID. I'm very publicly supporting the ability to question paradigms, um, as you know, with my, I, I'm regularly quoted that science evolves by being challenged, not by being followed. That is the only way forward if we're actually to actually look at the future of science. Now, around COVID, there's been a whole lot of measures introduced by governments with very little 
scientific support. And if you are questioning those as a medical practitioner, you've actually been silenced by the medical board and many people have been deregistered. A lot of healthcare professionals around the country have actually left the system. Good people have left because they felt so strongly about the measures and they weren't given a voice and they were threatened with deregistration or being losing their, their occupation. So a lot of them have just left. And I, I use by way of example um, lots of things like masks, they come and go. Um, hydroxychloroquine was initially used in the management of uh, COVID uh, in the early months particularly here in Tasmania. And then six months later, if you mentioned hydroxychloroquine, you would be deregistered. And now you can prescribe it again for uh, the management of COVID in the early early periods. So, I mean, that's just one example where the government keeps flipping their stand, but the medical regulator has actually come, uh, come in and has been politicised. I've got a uh, certain amount of inside knowledge at the TGA Therapeutic Goods Administration, they've been politicised. So where AMPS comes into it, where that medico-legal summit uh, came in, is that they're actually becoming a voice for those healthcare professionals who actually want to question government policy. And it's not just around COVID, it's about having the ability to actually do the right thing and individualise patient care. And, I mean, that's a long, long answer, which is... uh, where we're at. Um, it's a complex issue, but medical regulation, medical decisions have been politicised and we're trying to find an apolitical answer in the equation there. That's really important. My background, apart from organic agriculture, is I'm a radio technician and you know, I know to fix a problem you've got to address the cause and so many of these things are just fiddling with the symptoms and uh, I guess therein lies the problem. Medical care has, you know, is a term that we've been band-aiding uh, for so long. We need to get to the root cause of the issue, uh, and you know, that's actually, uh, if, to me, it's you know, we've got to help give people healthy food, and we can discuss what I think what is healthy food. But we need to give them healthy food that comes from healthy soil, that comes from um, uh, holistic care. And what we're doing is we're not addressing that. We're just we're literally people coming along with diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, the whole flow-in of cardiovascular disease, mental health issues, and people are just getting more and more drugs for that when we've actually got to go back to the primary issue. Now, that takes time to do that for an individual. But more importantly, that's actually not in the guidelines. Uh, The guidelines say, oh, you know, lifestyle decisions, but the long and short of it is if you're not actually following the guidelines and literally saying, you know, putting people on healthy food and not putting them on statins and cholesterol-lowering drugs, and uh, then you can get into trouble in the system. And that, that these are decisions which have become political. Guidelines have been written by pharmaceutical industry, processed food industry. Uh, guideline review committees are heavily stacked with people who are compromised by ties with industry. And, you know, enough's enough that's that was literally what i got into trouble with for actually calling out those people with vested interests and uh it's a it's a it's a somewhat uh less traveled path to question um everything but nonetheless it's um it's the right one we've got to learn from history gary and uh quite a few soils books i've read say 
look at history. Throughout history, there have been 26 major civilizations have collapsed when they've destroyed their soils locally. And when you destroy your soils, you don't suddenly run out of food, but the nutrition declines and you end up with all sorts of physical and mental problems. And, and that's happening globally. So that's not real promising. But again, what gives me hope is that the internet is providing a mechanism where scientists like or practicing doctors and scientists can can share information and, and bring the best information to the top. Let's hope that happens, Gary. Well I think it's fascinating. I mean it's a topic like you know, it's come dear to my heart with regenerative agriculture and how that actually all ties in with our uh, health and well being. To to extrapolate one of Teddy Roosevelt's comments you know, that the health of the people is dependent on the health of the food. The health of the food is dependent on the health of the soil. And until we address the soil, we don't address the food, we don't address the whole health cycle. And we are very, very fortunate here in Australia to be able to actually have access to good food. But as you know, if we don't, you know, their farming practices are. Uh, are stripping nutrition from the soil unless we can address that in a holistic method rather than just, you know, chemical method because I think we've passed, what is it, peak fertiliser, haven't we? Yeah. And um, we have to, in fact, um, get smarter. But we don't have to get smarter. We've got to look at history. history. The answer's there in history. The Aboriginals say when the country's sick, the people are sick, and uh, we've got so much to learn from their civilization that's gone for thousands of years. Oh, literally, you know, it, when you take, I've uh, been working with people who have done a lot of work in this 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 area of actually uh, taking Indigenous groups and Indigenous communities back to away from Western food. And back to their traditional diets and, and improve their diabetes, their metabolic syndrome, their obesity, their, their health. And um, we've got a lot to answer for. Well, this has been most interesting listening to you, Gary. People who want to find out more, how do they get in touch with you? A variety of uh, levels. I'm on Twitter. So is my wife, Belinda. So I talk about the science. Belinda talks about the vested interest. She's done an enormous amount of work there. She's the world expert. I um, literally get contacted every day from around the world. Uh, our talks are on YouTube, Gary Fetke, Belinda Fetke, you'll find a variety of stuff there, both on Twitter. She's on Facebook, Belinda Fetke, no fructose. She took over that website when it became a bit political. And she she has a website called isupportgary.com. I've got one called no, nofructose.com. But um, look, we've got people reach out to us from all around the world. That's fantastic, Gary. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. And uh, while there's some bad things happening, I'm, I'm increasingly optimistic that we can have these conversations and we can share them on social media and not so on social media, but it, it becomes unstoppable. If people with inquiring mind can find the answers and uh, this will be the way forward. I, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, let's educate ourselves and then educate our children and let them take it forward. Thank you so much, Gary. All right, Barry. Thank you. I've been talking to Dr. Gary Fetke about food and uh, our health. Uh, if you'd like to hear this conversation in full or conversation with other innovators in Western Australia, go to touristradio.com.au forward slash conversations as we tell the stories of people and places in Western Australia.